Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Joining me for our next swan of Truman Capote's High Society 6. It is time today for the original California girl, Slim Keith. This would be Big Mama to Truman Capote. Slim Keith is right there next to Babe in the pinnacle of Truman's High Society 6. This is a lot of story investigators. And before we begin, I have a spyglass here with a couple of names who get all the thanks and praise. Big love and thanks to Clarice W. and Cindy M., our newest Patreon friends. So grateful to you for your support over there. Hope you're liking all the done drops and not done yet bonuses. We had a huge week over on Patreon this week. We had two not done yet bonuses drop. The first, a little follow-up on Babe Paley and bird cages. The second, a little bit about Dorothy Hart, Hurst Paley Hershon, Bill Paley's first wife. Seriously, it really is all connected. Patreon.com slash done and done will get you all the details for those goodies. And don't forget, you can try a few free episodes out if you type in tiny.url slash free done. F-R-E-E-D-U-N-N-E. That'll get you some free goodies over there as well. All right, today, Slim Keith with her good looks, her golden locks, and her slender frame. Goodness, there's a lot that is just gold about Slim Keith. If Carol Marcus was made of moonbeams, I think Slim might be made of gold. Just like Babe Paley, Truman Capote is under Slim's spell, and Slim affects him as well. Slim has never really met anyone like Truman Capote before. Slim will tell Gerald Clark, Truman's biographer, this about Truman. He had a really extraordinary mind. He was one of the three or four brightest people I've ever known in my life. His head excited me immensely. Going to lunch with him in a good restaurant was the most fun there was. Compare that with the Norman Mailer quote from 1955 about going out with Truman. Mailer was a little nervous to be out with Truman in the bar, but not slim. What does she say? It's the most fun there ever was. Those restaurant lunches will be the most fun that ever was, but they will also inspire Truman Capote's Lakote Basque 1965 when he does sell out his High Society Six. Slim Keith's life and times were quite something. Similar in a way to Holly Golightly, Slim is a hit kid who makes good. Slim does not have the high society pedigree like some of the other ladies we'll be talking about, but Slim, she reinvents herself all the time. And charming, she is. Slim gets to know a lot of folks in her lifetime and has a few husbands and influential friends, too. Howard Hawks, the legendary director, is Slim's first husband, and Slim's influence is very much seen in Hollywood. Another one of those husbands, Leland Hayward, will have another connection in our through line soon. One of those famous friends, Ernest Hemingway. There is so much to Slim's story and how it all connects. Let's investigate.
Keith was born July 15, 1917. Slim's given name was Mary Ray Gross, and she is born in Salinas, California. Martha Ray's mom quickly changes her mind about the name Mary and switches it to Nancy, although no one's going to call Slim Nancy in just a little while either. The thing about Slim's mom, her mom was a great storyteller. And Nancy, as she is now known, and her brother and sister look forward every night to their mother's fabulous stories before bedtime. One night, though, during story time, Nancy's brother, Buddy, was getting close to the fire to warm up when the tail of his nightshirt caught on fire. Mom chases Buddy down and catches him as he's running around screaming, and Mom puts out the fire by rolling Buddy up in a carpet. Shortly after, the doctor arrived and decided that Buddy needed a blood transfusion. Sadly, though, for the Gross family, Buddy died shortly afterward, either from the trauma of the fire or perhaps a blood transfusion with the wrong blood type. From this point on, Nancy's family is never really the same. The already palpable tension between her parents and the growing hostility that Nancy's father has for Nancy's mother soon just manifests itself into downright hatred. And dad blames mom for the death of his only son. Nancy's father was convinced that his wife could have saved the son sooner if she had put out the fire a little bit sooner. After Buddy's death, Nancy and her sister Teedy were sent away to school. And at school, a little kind of not great here, T.D. begins to ignore Nancy in the hallways. So, not sisterly love at all. This behavior escalates into T.D. just being openly hostile towards her sister and even talking about the things that Nancy would rather not have anyone know about, like her bedwetting. Nancy will begin to wet the bed after the death of her brother, Buddy, but it is left to Teedy, the older sister at school, just kind of being a big mean jerk that is outing Nancy and all of her secrets to the other girls. Naturally, Nancy feels betrayed by this, but instead of letting her sister's betrayal and chastisements cause Nancy to feel badly about herself, they only make Nancy more determined to excel in life. She says, I would be better, brighter, more beautiful. I would become someone who would scale heights and realize all the dreams my sister and I both must have had. I would realize them, and I knew she would not. Eventually, it does become obvious that T.D. had completely disconnected herself from Nancy as well as their mother, One day shortly after Titi's graduation, people showed up at mom's house and those people said they were instructed to get all of Titi's things. Titi moved out that day with no explanation to her mother and Titi will never again speak to her mother or her sister Nancy. Tough times there, but it does get a little tougher. Nancy herself is going to be stuck again in the middle of mom and dad because soon enough, Nancy's father visits her at school and offers Nancy a lot. A car, a horse, 
whatever you want, Nancy, if you'll just come live with me and not your mom. Nancy's father says if Nancy's mom had no children living with her, then he wouldn't have to pay her any support at all. Nancy, because she loves her mom, does absolutely refuse her father's offer, but it turns out okay because Nancy has some other plans. When Nancy was a senior at her Dominican convent school, she really does feel a strong need to just get away from her own life. Needs a change of scene, and I don't know if there's any telling Nancy no. Nancy's mom reluctantly agrees to let Nancy go. You can leave school for a little while. This is purportedly under the guise of letting Nancy get some rest to help her health and allow a little bit of weight gain. Nancy and mom will find a doctor to write a note that recommended that Nancy spend some time in the sun. She needs a warm, dry climate. Easy enough, Nancy is going to drive across the Mojave Desert to Death Valley. Her destination is a very popular winter resort called the Furnace Creek Inn. And for this journey, Nancy's mother had bought her a yellow Packard Roadster, which she named the Flying Omelette. When Nancy arrives, she finds the Furnace Creek Inn to be well-run and pleasant, but catering to a much older crowd than Nancy had hoped for. The staff and the other guests, though, do take a parental-type interest in Nancy, making sure that she eats all of her meals and stays safe. Now, the good thing here, the Furnace Creek Inn is close enough to Los Angeles that it is frequently visited by people involved in the movie business. And while Nancy was there, some older men showed up for a stay. These men, Hollywood types, you know, turn out to be William Powell and Warner Baxter, the most popular romantic leading men of the time. Powell and Baxter say to Nancy, why are you here and not in school? And Nancy explains to the gentleman that she was there, sent by her mom to get healthier, but Nancy inquires back to William Powell and Warner Baxter, and by the way, why are you here and not working? And William Powell and Warner Baxter hoot and holler, they love that, and they invite Nancy to have dinner with them, and in turn, both become father figures to Nancy during their time at the Furnace Creek Inn. They eat their meals together. Both men will not let Nancy drink. They give her all kinds of advice. They make Nancy call them when she's safely back in her room at night to say she was basically back safe. These men feel very protective of this young girl. William Powell will Give Slim her nickname. The first iteration of this is Slim Princess. That's what Bill Powell calls Nancy, Slim Princess. And while the princess part didn't quite stick, Slim will last for the rest of Nancy's life. After Slim's time was over in Death Valley, Slim will head on out to meet her mother in Los Angeles, where the two would go back together to their home in Carmel. Before this happens, though, Bill Powell invites Slim and her mother to have lunch at his Beverly Hills home. Now, William Powell, the thin man, he's a big-time Hollywood movie star. This is about 1934, so by this time, 
William Powell has divorced Carol Lombard, but from what I gather, there's not really anything inappropriate with William Powell and Slim. Powell just really likes Slim, and with a cool name like Slim Princess, right, the sky's the limit. Of course, Slim and her mom are going to take Bill up on his offer to go visit his Hollywood home. In this year, 1934, William Powell does get a new home on Hillcrest Road. Well, new for him. It's a Spanish colonial that was originally built in 1926 for actor Hobart Bosworth. But William Powell is going to move into this home in 1934 on the heels of his 1933 divorce from Carol Lombard. And as you can imagine, upon seeing William Powell's extravagant home and lifestyle, Slim realizes she wants that life for herself. Slim will return to live with her mom and Carmel from 1935 to 1938, but she's really just waiting for the right opportunity to get to Hollywood and to begin achieving that lifestyle she's manifesting. Slim would make monthly visits to Los Angeles just to be part of the glamour and vitality that Los Angeles provided. In the meantime, Slim will continue her singing lessons and dances frequently at the Del Monte Hotel with her good friend Winston Frost. Slim and Winston remain friends throughout her entire life. And Winston Frost wanted to get to Hollywood, too. The two of them have a lot in common, and Winston will introduce Slim to a lot of the people that he knows. One of these connections, uh, Winston Frost, made for his friend Slim, led Slim to a circus party at William Randolph Hearst's Terra by the Sea in Santa Monica. Terra by the Sea is the name of the 118-room seaside compound that William Randolph Hearst built for his lover, Marion Davies. This home is super near the Santa Monica Beach Road homes. We've heard about these before. Patricia Kennedy and Peter Lawford lived in one. Nick and Lenny also rented one out when they first arrived in Hollywood. Marion Davies, no joke about this particular party In 1937, Davies hosts a circus-themed shindig. Marion sets up a full-size merry-go-round borrowed from Warner Brothers. And on the weekend, more than 100 people frolicked in that Venetian marble saltwater pool. Everybody wears costumes, and everybody comes. Joan Crawford dresses up as a baby doll. Charlie Chaplin was there. Greta Garbo was there. Invitations are coveted to this three-day on-the-beach stop-the-band-at-4-a.m. party. Slim makes such a good impression that William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies will in turn invite Slim to a weekend at San Simeon. Slim describes San Simeon as seeming to be from another world and another time. She said in all of her life and travels, she never saw something so, quote-unquote, pervasively rich ever again. The guests would all gather before dinner in a giant hall for one drink, just one, because that's all that Hearst would allow anyone staying in the home. At about 10 minutes before 10 p.m., which is the appointed dinner time, 
Slim describes what happens this way, quote, 10 p.m., right? An invisible door in the paneling would open and Mr. Hurst and Marion would appear as if by magic, unquote. Now at San Simeon, Slim meets, holy cats, Cary Grant, David Niven, all kinds of other interesting guests. Slim is also a frequent guest at Wintoon. This is the 86,000-acre ranch in Northern California owned by William Randolph Hearst as well. Obviously, the glamour and extravagance Slim was introduced to by William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies only made Slim's desire to get to Hollywood even greater. And in the spring of 1938, Slim does convince her mother to pack up and leave Carmel for Los Angeles. Now, when Slim gets to Hollywood, she's having the time of her life, regardless of the depression that is currently going on in the rest of the country. Slim was unburdened by worrying about an acting career because she never really wanted to be an actress anyway. Slim wasn't exactly sure what she wanted to do. She just knew how she wanted to live. And this is where I think we get a distinct glimpse of Slim within Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's. We have definitely seen the shades of Lily Mae Falk, of Carol Marcus, of Babe Paley as well. But it's this bit, I think, that is very specific to Slim and this particular time in her life. Let me go ahead and set this scene up. Truman Capote writes in Breakfast at Tiffany's, and he's standing in for the narrator. So imagine Truman coming down to Holly's apartment for a big party that Holly has invited him to. A creature answered the door. He smelled of cigars and nice cologne. His shoes sported elevated heels. Without these added inches, one might have taken him for a little person. His bald, freckled head was dwarf big. Attached to it were a pair of pointed, truly elfin ears. He had Pekingese eyes, unpitying and slightly bulged. Tufts of hair sprouted from his ears, from his nose. His jowls were gray, with afternoon beard, and his handshake almost furry. This is what the narrator walks into. This person says to the narrator, Kids in the shower, he said, motioning a cigar toward the sound of water hissing in another room. The room in which we stood, we were standing because there was nothing to sit on, seemed as though it were just being moved into. You expected to smell wet paint. Suitcases and unpacked crates were the only furniture. The crates served as tables. One supported the mixings of a martini, another a lamp, a liberty phone, Holly's red cat, and a bowl of yellow roses. Bookcases covering one wall boasted a half-shelf of literature. I warmed to the room at once. I liked its fly-by-night look. The man cleared his throat. You expected? He found my nod uncertain. His cold eyes operated on me, made neat, exploratory incisions. A lot of characters come in here. They're not expected. You know the kid long? Not very. So you don't know the kid long? I live upstairs. The answer seemed to explain enough to relax him. You got the same layout? Much smaller. 
He tapped Ash on the floor. This is a dump. This is unbelievable. But the kid don't even know how to live even when she's got the dough. His speech had a jerky metallic rhythm like a teletype. That's all the setup, y'all, but oh, here's where it really gets good. So, he said, what do you think? Is she or ain't she? Ain't she what? A phony. I wouldn't have thought so. You're wrong. She is a phony. But on the other hand, you're right. She isn't a phony because she's a real phony. She believes all this crap she believes. You can't talk her out of it. I've tried with tears running down my cheeks. Benny Pullen respected everywhere. Benny Pullen tried. Benny had it on his mind to marry her, and she don't go for it. Benny spent maybe thousands sending her to head shrinkers. Even the famous one, the one can only speak German. Boy, did he throw in the towel. You can't talk her out of these. He made a fist as though to crush an intangible ideas. Try it sometime. Get her to tell you some of the stuff she believes. Mind you, he said, I like the kid. Everybody does. But there's lots that don't. I do. I sincerely like the kid. I'm sensitive. That's why. You've got to be sensitive to appreciate her. A streak of the poet. But I'll tell you the truth. You can beat your brains out for her and she'll hand you horse shit on a platter. To give an example, who is she like you see her today? She's strictly a girl you'll read where she ends up at the bottom of a bottle of seconds. I've seen it happen more times than you've got toes, and those kids, they weren't even nuts. She's nuts. But young, and with a great deal of youth ahead of her. Ah, uh, if you mean future, you're wrong again. Now, a couple years back out on the coast, there was a time it could have been different. She had something working for her. She had them interested. She could have really rolled. But when you walk out on a thing like that, you don't walk back. Ask Louise Rainier. And Rainier was a star. Sure, Holly was no star. She never got out of the still department. But that was before the story of Dr. Wassel. Then she could have really rolled. I know, see, because I'm the guy was giving her the push. He pointed the cigar at himself. O.J. Berman. He expected recognition, and I didn't mind obliging him. If it was all right by me, except I'd never heard of O.J. Berman. It developed that he was a Hollywood actor's agent. I'm the first one saw her. Out at Santa Anita. She was hanging around the track every day. I'm interested, professionally. I did find out she's some jock's regular. She's living with the shrimp. I get the jock told, drop it. If he don't want conversation with the vice boys. See, the kid's 15. But stylish. She's okay. She comes across. Even when she's wearing glasses this thick. Even when she opens her mouth and you don't know if she's a hillbilly or an oaky or what. I still don't. My guess, nobody will ever know where she came from. She's such a goddamn liar. Maybe she don't even know herself anymore. But it took us a year to smooth out that accent. How we did it, finally, we gave her French lessons. And after she could imitate French, it wasn't so long. She could imitate English. We modeled her along the Margaret Sullivan type. But she could pitch some curves of her very own. People were interested, big ones. And to top it all, Benny Pullen, a respected guy, Benny wants to marry her. An agent could ask for more than wham. The story of Dr. Wassel. You see that picture of Cecil B. DeMille, Gary Cooper? Jesus, I kill myself. It's all set. They're going to test her for the part of Dr. Wassel's nurse. One of his nurses, anyway. Then wham, the phone rings. 
He picked up a telephone out of the air and held it to his ear. She says, this is Holly. I say, honey, you sound far away. And she says, I'm in New York. And I say, what the hell are you doing in New York when it's Sunday and you've got the test tomorrow? She says, I'm in New York because I've never been to New York. I say, get your ass on a plane and get back here. She says, I don't want it. I say, what's your angle, doll? She says, you gotta want it to be good and I don't want it. I say, well, what the hell do you want? And she says, when I find out, you'll be the first to know. See what I mean? Horseshit on a platter. Is she or ain't she? With Slim, maybe you'll never know. Maybe she's a phony, maybe she's not. She's always gonna keep you guessing. But it is not the life of an actress that Slim wants or will settle on. Slim has a far different future in mind. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. So, Slim hanging out at the Clover Club in Hollywood one day. Slim is introduced to the Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks, his nickname around Hollywood is Silver Fox. Howard is 22 years Slim Sr. and one of the most successful film directors of that time. Howard Hawks was intrigued when he learned that Slim was not trying to become an actress, since most of the young, attractive women in Hollywood were actually trying to become actresses. Hawks invites Slim to his home for a swim and lunch the next day. And Howard is very much a gentleman, but Silver Fox, right? He makes it obvious to Slim that he is interested in her. The second time Slim goes to Howard's house, Howard will introduce her to his three young children. At this time, (laughs) Howard tells Slim that He is also presently married to the mother of those three children. Slim was surprised, mostly in part because his home showed no evidence of a wife or a mother's touch. Howard Hawks explained that his wife, Athel, was the sister of actress Norma Shearer, but much more beautiful. He also told her that Athel was ill, which when Slim asked to explain that a little bit more, Howard Hawks expanded her illness to be quote-unquote emotionally disturbed. And Slim wasn't too discouraged by the problem of Howard's wife. Slim was already falling in love with Howard. His career, his house, his yacht, his whole lifestyle was exactly what Slim wanted. Things begin to progress very quickly for the two. Howard tells Slim he wants to marry her and that His marriage to Athol is over, and it had been for a very long time, and Slim holds on to that hope that Howard would get divorced, even though Slim was told over and over and over that Howard Hawks never would get a divorce, and she was just wasting her best years on this man who was never going to marry her. Eventually, though, Howard Hawks will get his divorce after he and Slim had been together for three years. Three years, a long time to wait for your guy, but Slim's not really sitting around. 
During that time, Slim meets most of Hollywood through Howard Hawks. They are close friends with Billy Wilder, Rosalind Russell, Gary Cooper, Ernest Hemingway, Cary Grant, Shipwreck Kelly, any other big Hollywood name, you can imagine Howard and Slim know them. Also, during this time, Slim essentially does become a mother figure to Howard's three children. Howard and Slim do marry December 11th, 1942. They will buy some land in Bel Air and build their dream home and farm together. Slim appears on the set of most of Howard's movies and would even consult with him on scripts that he was considering. Eventually, Slim will read all of the scripts that are sent to her husband, and Howard really trusts Slim to pass on the ones that she believed had promise. There's one small miss, though. It's kind of an interesting story. One script that Howard Hawks was sent was called Everybody Goes to Rick's. And Slim didn't really like it and tells Howard Hawks not to make it. And Howard trusts Slim. So you can imagine that movie did turn out to be Casablanca. Over time, however, the glamour of their life together began to wear off. And Slim saw the parts of Howard Hawks that were not so appealing. Slim will write, It's not that Howard was a liar because he wanted to best you or steal from you. He just had a terrible time with the truth. The lying was a psychopathic quirk. He dreamt when he was awake and he slept a totally dreamless sleep. Slim during this time will also learn of Howard's serious gambling addiction and womanizing tendencies as well. Now, Slim's super influential in Hollywood, though. It is during this time that Slim spots Lauren Bacall. We know her as Betty around here on the cover of Harper's Bazaar. Slim knows that Betty Bacall had the look that Howard needed for his new movie. Howard instantly flies Betty Bacall to Hollywood, and Howard uses Slim as his model for Betty Bacall's character in To Have or Have Not. (laughs) Howard uses Slim's clothes, her name, her speech, and suddenly becomes very interested in how she talked, what she liked, how she moved. And to his credit, Howard Hawks does acknowledge his wife's contribution in discovering Bacall. And Howard will give Slim half ownership of his contract with her. Betty Bacall and Slim remain friends for the rest of their lives. But no accounting for a marriage that's fizzling out. Because it is fizzling out and Slim, with no real career of her own, Slim's kind of getting a little bored. She started being featured in magazines, including Harper's Bazaar, and was eventually offered the job as West Coast editor. The gig doesn't really last too long for Slim, because soon enough she is surprised to discover that she's pregnant. Howard Hawks is uninterested in Slim's pregnancy or preparing to have a baby in the home. When their daughter Kitty was born on February 11, 1946, Howard Hawks took almost no interest in his new daughter at all. Slim maintained that the bitterness she ended up having towards Hawks was not to do with what happened between them and their marriage, but instead how he basically acted like their daughter Kitty did not exist. 
Slim and Howard end up divorcing in 1949. Why the divorce? Well, let's talk about what happens next to Slim. One night, while driving Slim home after a dinner party at David Selznick's home, this is in 1946, Leland Hayward asked Slim why she didn't leave Howard, so a good three years before their divorce. Slim responded in a normal way, saying he was her husband and the father of their daughter, and Leland Hayward tells Slim, it's obvious you have nothing together. You have so much to offer. There's so much ahead of you. You can have a giant life if you get the hell out of there. Who is Leland Hayward? Leland is 15 years Slim's senior, and Leland Hayward was one of the most successful producers and agents in Hollywood. Leland had failed out of Princeton and came to Hollywood, originally as a press agent for United Artists. Leland was twice divorced, although two marriages to his first wife. He had married again, though. Leland Hayward at the time is currently married when he meets Slim to Margaret Sullivan. After the first talkie in 1927, Leland Hayward was one of the first, if not the first, to really develop the movie agency business. Little bit of a fun spiderweb for you. Leland Hayward and Margaret Sullivan were married at his father and stepmother's home in Newport, Rhode Island. That home, Clarendon Court the future home of Sonny and Klaus von Bülow. That is still another story that is waiting in the wings on Done and Done. But it's kind of an interesting connection there. But Leland Hayward, reimagining the movie Biz, within a few years, Hayward had Hollywood's most successful and sought-after actors as clients, including Henry Fonda, Fred Astaire, Greta Garbo, James Stewart, and Margaret Sullivan. Leland Hayward convinced Slim to be the costume overseer on his national tour of the Broadway hit State of the Union. After the play ended, Leland and Slim continue to find ways of seeing each other. Slim feels close to Leland in a way that she never had with Howard Hawks. Leland makes Slim feel like a close friend, one she can confide in. And the two do have a very strong physical attraction. While Howard Hawks was busy making Red River with John Wayne and Montgomery Clift, it takes Hawks a little bit out of the picture, leaving a little bit more time for Slim and Hayward to, you know, hang out together. Their romance had become common gossip in Hollywood. In autumn of 1946, Hedda Hopper printed an item about the relationship referring to Slim and Leland as, quote, an unnamed director's wife and an unnamed agent producer, unquote. Slim decides to escape the spotlight and press for a little while, wants to get out of the heat, and she is going to take a little trip to Idaho to see her good friend, Ernest Hemingway. Now, ending Their marriages for both Slim and Leland would take time, but most especially for Leland. His children were older, and he didn't really want to break up their family. Due to the divorce laws during that time, Slim and Leland had to stay completely away from each other, so not to have transgressions held against them legally. Leland Hayward heads off to New York, 
and Slim will rent a home with her daughter Kitty in Brentwood. So Slim, hanging out by herself, when Clark Gable gets wind of Slim's separation, Gable's going to see an opportunity to pursue her. For Slim, though, she was never really interested in anything more than the idea of Clark Gable and says about Gable, he really wasn't very bright. In late 1947, Slim and Leland both filed for their first divorce decrees, but there was still a one-year mandatory waiting period before the final divorce decree was granted. Kitty and Slim will move to New York at this time to be near Hayward. Slim and Leland do marry in June of 1949, just days after their divorces were final. David Hawks, Slim's stepson, will give her away. The Justice of the Peace wedding was attended by Babe Paley and Jean Vanderbilt. The years that Slim was with Leland Hayward, she will describe as the best years of her life. They do attempt to have children, but unfortunately, Slim has several miscarriages. During this time, Slim finds out that she has RH negative blood, which was the cause of the pregnancy challenges. Slim desperately wanted a son, which she believed was due to losing her younger brother, Buddy, all of those years ago. So Slim does continue to try. Her last pregnancy seemed like it would be successful, but the baby died in the womb during its seventh month, and the doctors delivered the baby boy by cesarean section. On a follow-up visit during her recovery, Slim had a pap smear come back positive. She will go into the hospital for a biopsy, and when she wakes up from the anesthetic, she was told the doctors just went ahead and gave her a hysterectomy just to be on the safe side. Slim never knew if they found any cancer or not. Despite this heartache, though, the Haywards had a lovely life, full of career success and wonderful friends. Slim and Leland are particularly close to Jimmy Stewart and his wife Gloria, Mary Martin and Dick Halliday, Bill and Babe Paley, as well as Oscar and Dorothy Hammerstein. Kay Kendall and Rex Harrison were married in Hayward's Garden in Manhasset. Now, Slim's daughter, Kitty Hawks, loves her stepfather dearly. She calls him Pop. Slim becomes close with Leland's troubled children, who eventually move in with them. Slim will help care for Bridget Hayward when she was having medical issues, but was not yet discovered or diagnosed as having epilepsy. Slim and Leland's happy times, though, don't last forever. At the age of 20, Bridget Hayward will end up overdosing on her medication. Slim and Leland were no longer married at that time, but Slim grieves deeply for Bridget. What? Stop the presses. Slim and Leland were no longer married by that time? No, they weren't. Let's go to 1958, where Betty Bacall invites Slim to travel to Europe with her in an attempt to get her life moving again after almost a year after Humphrey Bogart's death. Vacation starts with VA. One thing you'll love about your trip to Virginia is that you'll never have to settle for one thing. All that you love is all in one trip. 
Start yours at Virginia.org. We have talked about Lauren Bacall, Betty Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, Swifty Lazar, Frank Sinatra, all of that in previous episodes. But this story, y'all, okay, Slim was scheduled to go with Leland Hayward to Munich to meet Baroness Maria von Trapp to, you know, discuss making a movie about her life. This movie, as we know, ultimately becomes The Sound of Music. But Betty has invited Slim to travel to Europe, so no worries. Leland's like, hey, I'll meet up with you two in Paris, and then Slim, you and I will head on to Munich together. Betty and Slim head off on their European adventure. However, right before she leaves town, Babe Paley calls Slim. And Babe said her sister Betsy was sending her Pamela Churchill for the weekend to entertain. Now, Betsy, at this time, her husband is Jock Whitney, and Jock Whitney was the American ambassador to Great Britain and a good friend of Pamela Churchill. Pamela Churchill's going to be in town, but oh no, Betsy and Jock Whitney are not going to be in town. So Betsy offers her sister, Babe, and Babe's husband, Bill Paley, as alternative hosts. Babe had gotten tickets to the theater for Pamela and was trying to find her an escort. And Slim and Babe, together, decided that Leland Hayward would be a perfect escort since Slim would already be gone by that time with Betty Bacall. At this time, Pamela Churchill was 39 years old, married and divorced from Randolph Churchill for years, and during her single time, y'all, Pamela Churchill, whoa, had affairs and has been kept by kind of the most glorious of men. Ellie de Rothschild, Gianni Agnelli, Prince Ali Khan, Stavros Nikoros, Aristotle Onassis, Jakey Astor, Avril Harriman, and Edward R. Murrow. Immediately after Pamela was told of Leland escorting her to the theater, Pamela begins calling Leland Hayward, sending him gifts and planning a nice dinner for him. This is all before Slim leaves town. Much to Slim's surprise, things between Pamela and Leland escalated rapidly. Slim didn't think Leland would be too interested in Pamela. Slim thought Pamela understood that men slept with her and bought her things and maintained her extravagant lifestyle, but men don't marry Pamela. Pamela, (laughs) for her part, relentlessly pursued Leland Hayward, and Leland Hayward was obviously open to Pamela's advances. Leland eventually admitted the affair, but assured his wife Slim that he wasn't going to marry Pamela, and Slim convinced herself that Leland was telling her the truth. Later, Slim acknowledges the irony of the situation. Margaret Sullivan had left Leland alone too much, which allowed Slim to come in between them. Now, Pamela had taken advantage of Slim, making the very same mistake. Leland would end up marrying Pamela on the very same day that his divorce from Slim was final. Now, during their marriage, Pamela spends Leland's money freely and extravagantly. Pamela was, however, shocked and devastated to find that there was nothing left for her after Leland Hayward passes away. He was a man of great wealth, but 
Leland and Pamela end up spending it all. That is only the beginning of Pamela. Her story will be coming back around in our investigation sooner than you know. We're here for Capote's Coterie, right? So let's go ahead and talk about Slim and Truman. Because to Truman, Slim was always known as Big Mama. They have an over 25-year friendship. Truman and Slim originally meet at Diana Vreeland's house in the early 1950s. As most people did during that time, Slim finds Truman riveting. She loves his clever conversation. They see each other socially for lunches, for dinners and drinks. This happens for years. But it wasn't really until 1958 when the film producer Sam Spiegel invited Truman, Slim, and Cary Grant to go to Russia with him that they spent a sustained period of time together. Sam Spiegel was invited to Russia to show three of his films, Bridge Over River Kwai, On the Waterfront, and The African Queen. And Slim and Truman and Cary Grant, they have a great time. They visit the Kremlin, they see the Bolshoi Ballet perform, each marvel at how no one in Russia knows who the heck Cary Grant is anyway. Nobody asks for his autograph. Truman and Slim will travel alone on to Leningrad and Copenhagen. Truman arranged for them to meet Isaac Dennison. We know her as Baroness Karen Blixen. Karen Blixen is an author that both Truman and Slim admire. I love this story. As they were leaving, Baroness Blixen asked Slim if there was anything she could do to enhance Slim's enjoyment of her country. Slim responded by saying that she knew it would sound like a trite request, but, quote, what I would love more to have than anything is a copy of Out of Africa with a dedication, unquote. The very next day, Slim receives that copy of Out of Africa inscribed to Nancy Hawks in memory of her visit to Rungstedland. Best wishes, Karen Blixen. It was so special to Slim that she doesn't even care that her last name is wrong. The very next day, Slim gets a second copy, this time inscribed with to Nancy Hayward in memory of her visit to Rungstedland. He who makes no mistakes seldom makes anything at all. Now, by this time, Truman and Slim had spent three weeks traveling together, and on their very last night in Copenhagen, Truman said to Slim, Now, Big Mama, you get undressed and get into bed, and I'll tuck you in. And Slim did, and Truman came over to her bed and tucked her in and kissed her on the forehead. Slim said, Thank you, Truman. That was dear. And Truman said, sleep well, because I love you very, very much. And Slim replied, I love you too, Truman. Truman looked at Slim a long while and said, no, you don't. Slim objected and said, don't talk like that. Of course I do. And Truman responds, no, 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 you don't. No one loves me. I'm a freak. You think I don't know that? I know how difficult it is for people to adjust to what I look like and how I sound when they first see me. It's one of the reasons that I'm so outrageous. I don't think anyone has ever loved me, maybe Jack, but not many other people. I'm an object. I'm a centerpiece, not a figure of love, and I miss that. 
there's not an awful lot to love. There was no self-pity when he said this, just an acknowledgement. And Slim says she honestly doesn't know if she did love Truman at that time or not, but she knew she didn't trust him. Truman complained to Slim that she never confided in him. And Slim always really kind of knew that if he was sharing with Slim things that other folks had confided in him, that more than likely Truman would do the same to her. Slim's aim with Truman, she will say, was, quote, not to be his source or his subject, unquote. And Slim honestly doesn't believe most of what he tells her about other folks either. It is during a short visit with Truman and his longtime lover, Jack Dunphy, in Switzerland that Truman let Slim read the first quarter of In Cold Blood. She was so impressed by what she read that Slim told Truman that it would make a fantastic movie. Truman hadn't really thought of this yet because he didn't really think two killers in Kansas would have the potential to become any kind of a hit film. After In Cold Blood, Truman Capote swiftly went downhill, both personally and professionally. His swans did try to help him, but Truman really seemed determined to ruin himself. His behavior, appearance, and writing were all noticeably worse. One day, Truman invited all of the ladies to a lunch he was hosting, and when they all arrived, there was an empty chair next to Slim. All of the ladies were a little fascinated about the idea of the mystery guest. Then, Pamela Churchill Hayward walked in. Oh, Truman. When Lacote Basque 1965 was published in 1975, all of his swans felt betrayed, especially Babe Paley. Truman tried to tell Slim that the character Lady Coolberth was modeled in that chapter after Pamela Churchill, not her. Slim doesn't believe Truman and says it wouldn't have mattered anyway because even Pamela didn't deserve that. Truman makes several attempts to recover their friendship, but Slim never responds. She will say, perhaps if the work were better, I would now be feeling a mellowing toward Truman, but Lacote Basque was most certainly not reading Proust. It was more like a surgeon doing an operation with garage tools. It's as though Truman, having lost his scalpel and sutures, said, pass me the wrench. Slim will end her comments about Truman Capote by saying, when Truman Capote died on August 23rd, 1984, I felt nothing. For me, he had died nine years before. Let's go ahead and follow up to another writer that is a big deal to Slim Keith, and that is Ernest Hemingway. Ernest and Slim knew each other for a very long time, and old Ernest Hemingway pursues Slim over many years that they have a friendship. Slim spends long periods of time with Ernest and whichever wife he was married to at the time, a lot of these visits take place at his home in Cuba. Slim definitely enjoys the attention and interest that Ernest shows in her, even when she knew it made his last wife, Mary Walsh, very jealous. Slim's theory about Ernest was that 
He had a sexual issue that he compensated for by overtly flirting and courting a woman only when he was married to another woman because then he could be the gentleman by not sleeping with the object of his affection. Slim thinks this allows Ernest to feel like he's making a real sacrifice to remain faithful to whatever particular wife Ernest had at that time. Keep in mind, Ernest in his lifetime has four wives. So while married to Leland Hayward, Ernest Hemingway and Mary Walsh invited Slim to go on safari with them. Slim desperately wanted to go, but Leland Hayward told her that she couldn't go and explained, quote, there's going to be an accident with a gun, and when the smoke clears, Mary will be looking puzzled and you'll be dead, unquote. Mary Walsh, she's a little jealous. Slim and Betty Bacall were traveling together in Europe after the death of Humphrey Bogart. At this time, Slim and Betty will visit the Hemingways in Spain. This particular time, Mary Walsh had to put up with not just Hemingway's flirtations with Slim, but also Betty Bacall. On their final night together, Mary had had a lot to drink and excused herself. After a few minutes, Mary returns, walks over to Betty, and holds out her two closed fists. Which hand do you want? Mary asked. I'll take that one, Betty replied, not noticing exactly how angry Mary had become. Mary turned over her hand and opened her fist, and in her palm was a bullet. That is for anyone who moves in on my man, Mary says. Betty, Slim said, I think we better be going, and the two quickly left. After Slim's divorce from Leland, she really did have to decide what she wanted to do with the rest of her life. She'd never really been alone. Slim at this point decides to travel, and her traveling ends up taking her to Pamplona to meet Ernest Hemingway. By this time, Ernest is drinking far too much and was swinging between depression, paranoia, and madness. Slim expresses concern for Ernest, and he will tell Slim, You know, Miss Slimsky, I can promise you one thing. You and I will spend the end of our lives together. We always should have been together, and we will be together in the end. There is another little bit of a nod in Breakfast at Tiffany's to Slim. We've talked about this quote before in the Carol Marcus story, where Holly Golightly is talking about, I thought writers were quite old. Of course, Soroyan isn't old. I met him at a party, and he really isn't old at all. In fact, she mused, if he'd give himself a closer shave, by the way, is Hemingway old? In his 40s, I should think. That little section there does give that nod to Hemingway and Slim. And honestly, as much as Slim is aware that Ernest Hemingway, Papa, is not well and getting worse, Slim is still really surprised when she was told of his death. In July 1961, while vacationing with her daughter Kitty on Cape Cod with Shipwreck Kelly's family, Shipwreck Kelly tells Slim that Ernest had ended his life by suicide. Slim remembers knowing in that moment that a big part of her life was gone. Slim's going to have one more marriage, though. 
because ever since Leland had married Pamela, there were now two Mrs. Haywards in New York City, and Slim was understandably tired of running in the same circles. At this point, Slim decides to move to London for a few months for some quiet time, some recharge time. Enter husband number three, Kenneth Keith. Kenneth Keith was the then chairman of a British merchant bank called Philip Hill Higginson. The two met through mutual acquaintances, and Kenneth Keith invited Slim to a weekend party at Holcomb Hall. This is the home of Lord Lester. Slim agrees, and Keith picks her up in his Bentley, and soon enough, the two begin courting. The relationship between Slim and Keith moves pretty quickly, and the couple were married on June the 22nd, 1962, with Kitty Hawks serving as Slim's maid of honor. Sir Kenneth Keith will be knighted in 1969 and then created Baron Keith of Castle Acre. Slim and Kenneth do enjoy their country estate, their social connections in London, their glamorous parties all over Europe. Slim volunteers at the Tate Gallery and very much enjoys redecorating and updating their estate in Norfolk. And although Slim realizes that she's leading a charmed life, Slim is still lonely and feels a little bit out of place. Eventually, she realizes that there's no love in her marriage. And Slim will say if she had stayed in that marriage, she would have withered and died. Slim and Sir Kenneth Keith divorce after a decade of marriage. So after deciding to leave Kenneth Keith, Slim will move back to New York. Here she'll travel, she'll spend time with friends, and pretty much do exactly what she wants to do. Slim remains close to her stepchildren, and naturally her daughter Kitty. One of the few regrets Slim admits to is not going to Africa with Ernest Hemingway. Slim Keith will end her autobiography with these words, I've more than made it. My life has been a feast, and I don't intend to push back my chair just yet. Nancy, Slim, Grosshawks, Hayward Keith, died of lung cancer on April 16, 1990 in Manhattan, the city she loved best. Oh, Slim Keith, what a story, the second of our High Society Six, and nowhere close to the last, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. I appreciate you spending your time with me today and for your support of Done and Done, for telling your friends, for your kind reviews and your emails, for your support on Patreon, too. All of you are simply the very, very best. Until we meet again, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.